You know, you might think it's about time for a Bible Geek episode, and you'd be right. Uh, I am the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price. Uh, happy to be with you again today. And uh, just to uh, repeat myself redundantly, I, uh, which is itself a redundancy, I'd like to... Um, just reiterate um, the the stance of the Bible geek. I know um, longtime listeners will certainly know this. Uh, some might think that the goal here is to criticize or attack or debunk the Bible. That is not the case, uh, though it's easy for some folks to confuse that with what is my goal to um, elucidate the Bible and try to uh, solve its puzzles. Uh, in a way that uh, seems more persuasive case by case, and that does seem to threaten a kind of wooden, fragile view of, of the Bible and biblical authority. In my opinion, uh, I guess I'd be closest to people like C.H. Dodd and uh, uh, I guess Harry Emerson Fosdick and other old-time liberals who say that the uh, inspiration of the Bible was really the the inspired genius of some of its writers. And uh, that uh, doesn't mean anything supernatural, necessarily. And uh, it certainly does not guarantee any uh, consistency throughout the Bible, because I think we uh, don't find a lot of consistency throughout the Bible. I, I cringe when I hear people say, Yes, it's written by different authors, but the uh, message is uh, the same throughout, and that shows it's inspired by God. Well, of course, it only seems that it's consistent uh, if you uh, read it that way, based on the uh, prior assumption that it has to be so. Uh, but uh, if you... Um, just set that aside and say, now, let me do what the Protestant reformer said we ought to do and read this as we would anything else. And uh, then we, we take it more seriously, perhaps, because it's scripture, but we don't read it in some way that is extraordinary. Because if we do, if we apply some sort of sacred hermeneutic, um, demanding, for instance, that we harmonize contradictions, you're, you're not, uh, you know, you, you you might as well uh, do uh, gematria or allegorizing. I mean, what's the point? You're reading into the Bible in that case. You're straightjacketing the Bible by theology rather than deriving your theology from the Bible. And granted, the contradictory character of the Bible renders that impossible in any traditional way. Uh, and... Um, you just have to let deep speak unto deep. You have to uh, discern the spirits even within the canon, as Ernst Kesemann said. Uh, you have to uh, just see if you can detect the wisdom there, and that's that's not too tough to do in an awful lot of places. And uh, make of it what you will. It's not an open and shut, clearly delineated thing. I know people want it to be because they're afraid of thinking for themselves, and in turn, they're afraid of doing that because they think God is a <coughs> peevish theology professor who's going to send you to hell if you don't get everything right, which is just laughably silly, I think. Uh, and uh, so our purpose here is to understand the Bible better because we're fascinated with the Bible. 
I know there are people that are just bent on attacking the Bible, and and that's silly, I think, uh, uh, just as silly as the bibliolatry, the worship of the Bible that you have from the other uh, quarter. But the Bible geek stance, and I think uh, most of you hold this as well, is to say it is darn fascinating and we're uh, interested in it in the same way a classicist is interested in the Iliad and the Odyssey and and so forth. Uh, So we're friends of the Bible and uh, advocates of the Bible, not opponents of it, but we're honest with the Bible, trying to be anyway. Okay, Uh, that involves uh, reinterpreting the Bible and that's a perfect slightly contrived uh, way of segueing into a uh, an appeal for sales. I have a book uh, that I think you would uh, enjoy. Uh, it's been out for a while. Uh, the, the publisher is not the best known, but the book is on Amazon. Uh, it's called Reinterpreting the New Testament. And it's a whole bunch of essays of mine uh, on different aspects of the historical Jesus and uh, uh, particular passages in the in the Bible and so on. I, I think you'd find it fascinating, and uh, we should do me a favor and yourself a favor and uh, order a copy. It's both paperback and hardcover. So with that, let's say we actually get into the, the meat of this show, uh, what it's actually supposed to be about, and that's your questions. Uh, Tom says, I'd... Uh, oh, no, I'm, I got the wrong... Uh, Wrong one there. Um, this is, well, maybe, this, no, no, this is from Judas Christos. He says, I had a thought on today's live stream. The Jewish feast of trumpets uh, from noise or blast uh, is Rosh Hashanah. This New Year festival is already ripe for an end time, new beginning analogy. I think this idea is merged with the trumpets of Revelation. Also, there's some evidence that Christians merged Paul's trumpet of the rapture with the, uh, you know, the, the trump and of the archangel and so on, uh, with the festival of Rosh Hashanah to wonder if the rapture would occur at Rosh Hashanah. Um, I've never heard that, but it does sound uh, quite likely. Uh, I mean, yeah, once you think of it, it becomes almost irresistible to to suppose that uh, there is a more mystical significance to the association of uh, trumpetry with uh, eschatology and uh, Rosh Hashanah. And as you say, the, the new year is a new beginning. Some tribes say that uh, when the new year comes, they speak of uh, the world having passed rather than the year having passed because they associate the two. It's like a whole new world. Fascinating. Good idea. Our old pal, uh, Slobodan Vukovic, says, what do you think about that last seventh chapter of the book, Jesus for Skeptics? where a list of hardcore atheists is given who, under numerous and solid evidence, changed their attitude and became hardcore Christians. Well, I've not read that book, uh, and uh, I don't know what it says, but I have, over the decades, read various anecdotes about uh, famous uh, 
people thought to be inimical to Christian faith, like Rousseau and Darwin and Marx and so on, on their deathbed saying, oh boy, what a mistake I made. Uh, and uh, I, I wish I hadn't said all that stuff and I hope God will forgive me and so forth. Uh, it, those stories tend to be apocryphal. Uh, they, they don't uh, actually uh, tell you what the death of the famous last words were. Uh, but um, the idea that a bunch of people uh, who were skeptics have been argued into it and say, well, all right, you got me. I guess it's all true. I believe in, uh, usually, they're thinking fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, there, I, again, I'm not sure. I, I guess um, uh, Anthony Flew is presented that way, but as you probably know, there's a great deal of uncertainty as to uh, what change of mind Flew made. Uh, did he actually embrace Christianity or some kind of deism or some kind of intelligent design? Uh Abraham, I think that's his name, um, oh boy, what's, Varghese, I think it is, sort of ghost-wrote that book for him, and uh, there's a big question as to whether this represented Flew's view, or if Flew was really mentally competent when he allowed this to be written under his name. Uh, but in any event, uh, it, it means nothing, I hate to say, because you have to like to say, well, if they were convinced, I, I guess I ought to believe it. No, uh, that's the old uh, logical fallacy of appeal to authority. You need to, to look at what made them change their mind. Uh, is the argument, is the supposed evidence really cogent? Well, you've got to decide that. You, you can't uh, allow their decision to uh, change your mind. In fact, that kind of thing goes all the way back to Martin Luther, who said you can't have uh, uh, an inherited faith. Like, you, you, you don't... Uh, you do it. You're cheating yourself if you say, "Well, I guess the bishops know what they're talking about." I think this was called implicit faith, uh, so I'll believe whatever they say. Oh no, you don't. You, you can't do that. You can't take that risk. You must decide. Uh, and uh, I mean, you you could just say, "Well, what the heck? I'm taking the leap of faith and believing the creed." You know, nobody's going to stop you, but that's unwise. You, you never know. Uh, I mean, if, if if you feel so ignorant of the matter that you've got to just trust somebody else, you have no grounds for picking out who to trust. You've got to learn as much as you can and make your own decision. So it really doesn't matter uh, if, uh, you know, you had... Uh, well, it works both ways. Like uh, if you have uh, big-time atheists and skeptics saying, oh, my gosh, I guess Christianity is true. Or you had Christians saying, boy, I, I wasted so much time. I'm, I now see that there is no God and so forth. Well, I, I wouldn't accept their word for it either, obviously. You know, you, you've got to uh, look at the, the uh, evidence and the arguments yourself. So, all right. So I, I've not read that book, but from what you say about it, I'm not really uh, eager to. 
Uh, Tom Shannon says, do you know of any good books about Polycarp? A few cursory searches only bring up the epistle to the Philippians and the martyrdom account, plus a few hagiographies. Is there a definitive researched work out there that I'm missing? Uh, well, there is a, uh, a, a book that has not been published, though I guess it may have been circulated, uh, uh, I, I published an appendix to it uh, because I had access to it by uh, Stefan Huller. Uh, the, the whole manuscript being uh, called uh, Against Polycarp. But I, I don't know that it's that easy to get a hold of. Um, but I would recommend a book by David Trobish, T-R-O-B-I-S-C-H, uh, called the First New Testament, and that is not about Polycarp's life, really. It's about uh, his contribution to the form of the New Testament canon and what's in it. It's really fascinating and lays out a, a case for a, a single uh, redactor who created um, our collection of 27 New Testament books, which took a while to get the uh, the uh, imprimatur, uh, the, the blessing of the Orthodox authorities. Uh, but uh, it's uh, in this book, he doesn't actually mention Polycarp by name. He says there must have been this significant anti-Marcionite redactor, but in a, a later article, he tells you why he thinks it was Polycarp. I don't know if there's a book containing that, uh, but, um, but I would look at that if you want to see what Polycarp may have done. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, then there is a book which I, I'm not sure if you're mentioning this, if you're referring to this when you mention his work on the Philippians. There is an epistle to the Philippians, supposedly by Polycarp, uh, that's considered one of the Apostolic Fathers documents. But there is a book, I believe, by P. N. Harrison uh, called Polycarp's Two Epistles to the Philippians. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, quite interesting. And again, uh, as you say, there's not a whole heck of a lot on Polycarp. And uh, so I would check this out. It seems uh, I've read it, I've enjoyed it, and uh, it's not that easy to get. But uh, you might check these online book search services. Okay, thanks, Tom. Now, this a little bit longer from Jacob Boyd. Uh, he says, Long-time gay ex-evangelical ex-fundamentalist listener of the show here from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Like you, though I no longer adhere to evangelical theology and today identify as agnostic, I continue to find the Bible and the evolution of Christianity uh, in the early church to be a fascinating subject worthy of exploration and discussion. I have a brief story for you which I thought you might find interesting and I will wrap it up with a question if you bear with me. I promise the story is related to the show. I recently began playing a beautiful game called Assassin's Creed Valhalla, a role-playing game for the current generation of gaming consoles. 
This extremely popular and best-selling game follows the story of a Viking marauder named Ivor, who sets about to unify the disparate kingdoms of England under Viking rule. He, of course, was preceded by the Lothbrocks, including the famed Ragnar Lothbrok from Legend. Working in the background of the story is a shadowy order of Illuminati-like zealots whose uh, political machinations are not at first clear, though they become revealed as the story goes on. While meddling in the political affairs of the Kingdom of Mercia, Ivor encounters a magister being held captive for heresy and blasphemy in the dungeon of a local monastery. Following the rescue, the magister explains that she had been held captive for challenging the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Ivor presses her further to explain her theology, and to my absolute shock, she reveals that she worships the hidden God, and that her order believes that the Roman Catholic Church worshipped a false god, the demiurge Ialdabaoth, and that they had imprisoned her out of fear of her hidden knowledge. She goes on to say that the goal of her order of zealots was to purge England of the Roman Catholic Church's false teachings and influence. She says that the Catholics, and I quote, believe in Jesus the Redeemer, but we know his true purpose as the enlightened teacher of the treasury of light. I absolutely could not believe I was seeing Gnostic Christian references in popular culture like this, uh, much less in a popular video game. My question for you is this. We know from the Nag Hammadi texts that Gnostic theology was alive and well into the 4th century. Is it possible that Gnostic factions could have survived persecution as late as the 8th century, when the Vikings began invading and ransacking the British Isles? Or is this story arc a profound work of well-thought-out fiction? Well, it both could be true, uh, Jacob, uh, because <clears throat> uh, we, we do know that Gnostic ideas were present, especially in Eastern Europe, but, uh, you know, who knows where else, on into the Middle Ages. But uh, there were several different Gnostic-leaning groups, the, the Bogomils, the Cathari, and the, so on. Uh, the... Uh, uh, the, the the scholarly debate over this is whether th these groups represented a continued underground existence of Gnost of early Gnosticism. Uh, they kept evolving and so on, as you would expect. Uh, or if Gnosticism had been successfully stamped out, but um, it's the result of uh, 
thinking about perennial theological problems, right? How could the world be ruled by a, and created by a good deity, given all the stuff that's going on in it? I mean, that occurs to people in all religions, and there's a range of ways of dealing with it, and it's no surprise that uh, people in different religions and different uh, places in the world wind up coming up with the same range of options. Uh, the human mind isn't that different, right? We've all got the same equipment, and we're all dealing with the same uh, menu of problems, and uh, sooner or later we come up with the, the same uh, basic options of how to deal with them, and one of them is anti-cosmicism that the world was not created by a good god, but by a demiurge, which is derived from Plato. Um, uh, the, um, the idea of a creator subordinate to the high god or gods. And uh, so they may simply have reinvented the wheel. Uh, this was the idea of um, the guy that wrote The Tree of Gnosis, um, What's his name? Um, Johan... Oh, boy, I'm, I'm forgetting it. Um, but it's a great book. You'd enjoy it. It's the Tree of Gnosis. I know that. Um, and uh, so it's, it's hard to know. You could have a kind of Gnostic thing that popped up again or that was descended from the, the older traditions. Um, a, uh, it was a... Yoan, I-O-A-N, Kulianu, C-O-L-I-A-N-O-U, I believe. That's the guy I was trying to think of. Yoan um, Kulianu. Uh, and uh, he was killed by, he was a Romanian and was uh, murdered by a Romanian uh, assassin, uh, believe it or not. Uh, what, a, what a story. Uh, but that book is good. Another one that that uh, would be relevant, I guess, is Jesse Weston's book, From Ritual to Romance, where she suggests that the um, Arthurian legendary was based on uh, a kind of uh, Celtic mystery cult. That's not exactly Gnosticism, but it's a similar sort of a thing. And I, I found that book enormously interesting, and I would recommend that. Uh, but it's not impossible in the least, though. I, I don't, you know, it sounds to me like this could simply be a fictive appropriation of Gnosticism, like you have in some of the Japanese uh, uh, anime, like uh, Evangelion, whatever it is. There's a lot of Gnosticism in that, I'm told. Oh, so thanks, Jacob. Okay, now this is uh, from uh, Jamie from Kentucky. Says, I'm currently reading The Rise and Fall of the Bible by Timothy Beale, B B-E-A-L, if you want to look it up. I'm enjoying it, and I'm learning quite a bit. Have you read this book? What do you think about it? Uh, I've never read it, I have to admit. Uh, what do you think of his thesis that publishers are cheapening the experience of studying the good book by promoting, quote, Bible consumerism? 
Does grappling with the inconsistencies, inaccuracies, anachronisms, and atrocities in the Bible wound faith, or is it a good exercise? Uh, I, for one, know that the more I study the Bible, the more skeptical I've become, in great contradiction to what I've been told in Sunday school. Maybe the priests were on to something when they discouraged Bible reading in the old days? I don't know. Well, I think that is what they were afraid of. They uh, knew that uh, you uh, might find things that they have long since learned to deal with, or should I say to uh, suppress, and uh, they don't want you uh, reading it because you might not, in fact, you almost certainly would not know their elaborate group of rationalizations and harmonizations. Uh, you might just see what it says and think, look, I, I can't buy this. Uh, and, um, you know, I forget who said this, but uh, oh boy. somebody famous said, the best way to become an atheist is to read the Bible. Uh, well, yeah, uh, there there really is a point to that because you do begin to see all these things that seem grossly incompatible with this book being a revelation of an omnipotent and uh, omniscient God. Uh, and uh, But as for the consumerism, I assume that's a reference to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the availability of loads of different modern translations of the Bible. I don't uh, disapprove of that. I mean, who, just think for a minute, uh, who is uh, likely to be buying a bunch of Bible translations? I should think it's it's a person who is real interested in studying the Bible in some detail and depth, right? Uh, who wants to say, well, you know, a translation is never exact. It would be helpful to compare different translations and see what the possibilities are. And I think that's real good and uh, and certainly fits well with a uh, with a, a, a in-depth study of the Bible. So I, and now I'm not sure if that's what he means. I've not read his book, but. That's what Bible consumerism suggests to me, and I think that's, uh, if you want to put it that way, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, and uh, will the, uh, a critical reading of it wound faith, or is it a good exercise? Well, it's, it's likely both, right? Because uh, the more you look into it, the less easy is, it is to take it like uh, with childlike innocence which you uh, shouldn't really want to do. I know there are those passages that unless you inherit the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. Well, does that mean a second naivete, or does that mean innocence? Um, being wise as serpent, but uh, innocent as a dove? Uh, it's uh, That's an interesting thing to keep in mind, right? You can be innocent in some ways, and yet have a sophistication that sees things are not so simple after all. Uh, I think that, uh, again, the unexamined faith is not worth believing, and you are going to grow in your understanding of the Bible by uh, facing unafraid these, these various uh, 
stumbling blocks because uh, you you need to face that stuff or you're you're never going to get out of Sunday school uh, and uh it's um who knows what you're going to come out believing but it's if it's bunk isn't it better to know it than living in a fool's paradise but uh, plenty of people have studied this stuff and simply found that uh, their faith deepens and that they're more tolerant of ambiguities. They don't have to neurotically insist that everything be all uh, nailed down and ironed out. So I think it's it's a good and necessary thing. Um, I, I think that uh, you're you're really undermining faith when you say keep it simple because life is not simple, and eventually you're going to find that uh, the understanding you have been given of the Bible is too simple to enable you to cope with life. So, uh, you know, uh, as as Martin Luther once said, "Sin boldly, but believe more boldly." Still, well. Uh, I think that's been well updated by Bultmann and Tillich, who said that 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 the um, Lutheran phrase "be uh, simul justus et peccator" uh, simultaneously um, justified yet a sinner. They said you got to apply this to the cognitive realm. Uh, you to say that you're you are a believer but uh, a doubter who weighs everything, sort of like a scientist who, uh, whose method is to doubt and, and by that means eventually prove which theory is correct uh, and uh, not just uh, you know, blindly accepting what some people say. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's commitment to science that uh, and truth that prompts the scientists to doubt and test. Uh, well, that's what uh, faith ought to do, Tillich and Bultmann both said. Faith is concern. It's not ready answers. Uh, and uh, to deepen your faith, you've got to enter the, uh, the uh, Colosseum to face the lions of doubt. So enough sermonizing from, from me. Uh, let's see here. Um, here's one from uh, Kelly. The following is something that I wrote in response to a Facebook post asking about the differences between the Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, and variation versions of the Old Testament. Quote, the Septuagint, or Greek translation, was the Jewish Bible in Greek at the time of Christ, and for centuries later, this became the basis for the Old Testament in Christianity. The Masoretic text in Hebrew seems to appear in the first century CE or AD with the purpose of identifying the Hebrew and Aramaic sources of the Jewish Bible. Because the content of the Septuagint and the Masoretic text was different, this seems to be the basis for the differences in various holy books. I think uh, Jews hold to the Masoretic text, and the Greek Orthodox and some other groups hold more closely to the content of the Septuagint, although there are differences that I can't explain. 
Jerome and others created the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century, and to oversimplify, he seems to have... Uh, uh, which seems to have content somewhere between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, because the Masoretic text was used primarily in the Septuagint used where there was no Hebrew available. But some parts of the Septuagint were deemed dubious. One thing to keep in mind is that the Christians viewed the New Testament as primary, and references to the Septuagint found in the New Testament were used to various degrees to justify inclusion of parts of the Septuagint. When the Protestant Reformation occurred, they accepted the Masoretic text and some created the Apocrypha uh, for the portions of the Septuagint not found in the Masoretic text and the Catholic Church finally nailed down the canon with content close to the original Vulgate. Um, some Jews claim that the Septuagint was immediately destroyed in the fire of the Alexandrian Library. Do you know why they claim this despite evidence of other copies existing? Why are the Septuagint and Masoretic texts so different? Was it just easier to introduce new content in a greater geographic region? Was the original Hebrew text lost? Would you agree that the Orthodox accept nearly all of the Septuagint because it was the Bible at the time of Christ and the early church? I assume Catholics have taken a more critical stance, rejecting portions of the Septuagint that seemed dubious, but keeping portions that were quoted in the New Testament. Am I correct that modern biblical scholarship hasn't been as interested in the apocryphal portions of the Old Testament? If so, why is this? Well, let's go back uh, here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, Christians, by and large, early Christians did use the uh, Septuagint because they were Greek speakers, just like the diaspora Jews, the Jews living in the wider Mediterranean world who had pretty much forgotten Hebrew and Aramaic and themselves spoke Greek uh, so they could read it, you know, uh, like we read it in English, right? The early church, again, mostly Greek speakers, perpetuated the use of this and the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches still do. Uh, the Masoretic text is, a, uh, is like the Orthodox Hebrew text uh, th that um, was pretty faithfully copied for many centuries by a group of scribes called the Masoretes, hence the name, the Masoretic text. Um, I'm not sure if we know when they began their work, uh, if the Masoretic text is was began to be copied and promulgated in the first already in the first century CE. Um, it was certainly trying to preserve the Hebrew Bible because that was supposed to be the touchstone for any translation, right? I mean, that's what you were translating, though I'm oversimplifying a bit, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, now, the content of the Septuagint and the Masoretic texts were different. Uh, and this, okay, um, 
uh, let's see. Although there are, let's see, uh, there are differences I can't explain. Well, now, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. The Septuagint contains the so-called deuterocanonical, that is secondary canon, or Protestants call it the Apocrypha, which just means the books left on the shelf, the hidden books, but, but denoting the books that were not read uh, by Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews in the weekly synagogue scripture readings. They weren't condemned or anything, but they were not thought to be as inspired and authoritative. Wholesome, uh, you know, most of it's good stuff. Nobody denied that. But um, uh, they, uh, but some of the so-called apocrypha did not survive in Hebrew. Some, like uh, Sirach or, or uh, Ecclesiasticus, uh, that was written originally in Hebrew, but until uh, recently, relatively recently, they didn't. They thought the Hebrew was lost, and only the Greeks survived. Well, now we we have both. Um, so uh, the um, and some of them, like the Wisdom of Solomon um, and Maccabees and others, were apparently written by Jews in Greek, and the the rabbis who ruled the roost in Palestine thought, nah, that they, to be canonical, they have to be in Hebrew. And so they said, again, there's nothing wrong with these books, but uh, I don't want to consider them Hebrew scripture. They're edifying. Uh, go ahead and read them. But uh, we're not reading them in synagogue because they're not, uh, you know, any more than we would read some devotional book or theology book. There's a place for that stuff, but we want to read the Word of God, the written scriptures. And uh, they figured, well, Tobit, Judith, Maccabees, Wisdom, all that stuff, they don't quite qualify for that. Uh, but since they were... Um, they were included in, oh, so, so they would not be uh, included in the Jewish Bible. Now, obviously, I didn't say Hebrew Bible there because obviously they're not in Hebrew. Uh, but, um, the, but, um, the, uh, Palestinian Jewish rabbis said they're not in our Bible. They're not in the Tanakh. Okay. Uh, so, um, any more than the New Testament would be, uh, okay. Um, but they were used by Greek speakers uh, in Christianity, right? And they just, uh, you know, decided to keep the Apocrypha in there. They were part of the Bible as they received it, the Greek Bible. So the canon is different for that reason. Uh, the rabbinical disdain for the non-Greek books. So that's one way in which the content differs. Uh, another reason for the uh, difference is in, in uh, wording in the books that both the, the Tanakh and the Septuagint have is that the uh, Septuagint was translated from earlier manuscripts, earlier Hebrew manuscripts, than the Masoretic text, though the, the transmission of the text of the Masoretes was on the whole faithfully copied. Uh, there were goofs here and there, but even more important, they seem to have been based on um, 
texts of the Tanakh that differed in some places from those used by the Septuagint translators. So we're dealing with different Hebrew versions. that, uh, And so the Septuagint translators were often accurately translating from a Hebrew text that already differed from the Masoretic text. Uh, one reason we know that is because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they had copies of almost every Old Testament book in Hebrew, and these dated from a full millennium uh, before the copies of the Masoretic text that we have. Uh, and so this showed, yeah, they're like, for instance, how tall was Goliath uh, to convert the cubits into feet. Um, in the Masoretic text, it said that he was the equivalent of nine and a half feet tall. But uh, the Septuagint said he was the equivalent of six and a half feet tall. Uh, well, which was it? Well, the discovery of the much older Hebrew texts showed that the, that they too said Goliath was only quote unquote six and a half feet tall. So, and and there are a couple of other things like that uh, that uh, show that yes, uh, the um, the the Hebrew basis for the Greek translation was already a bit different from the type of text you have in the Masoretic version. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, okay, another reason they differ is that all translation involves interpretation. Right? Sometimes just a literal word-for-word -word, uh, translation results in something unintelligible. Uh, I was translating Schleiermacher's open letter on the so-called First Timothy, uh, and I didn't have much trouble with most of it, but there were a couple of passages where I thought, what the hell is he saying? Uh, he, he's like quoting a proverb or something, and I can translate the words, but w what does this mean? Uh, well, you know, the idioms are different, and so sometimes the, the Greek translators decided to put in what they figured it meant, though it wasn't absolutely clear to them. So that, that's, that's a third explanation for why there are some differences. And uh, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, there, there is a whole branch of uh, scholarship about the Septuagint and its text and where it came from and, and all of that. And, uh, and then there's the problem, <laughs> to make this even more complicated, that the New Testament often quotes the Septuagint rather than the writer doing his own translation of whatever Hebrew he had available, but that the quotes... Uh, but but there are instances where these Greek quotes from the Old Testament don't match the Septuagint. Now, what's going on there? Well, there were a couple of other Greek translations of the, of the Hebrew, uh, and uh, uh, Theodosian was one, and um, oh, I'm forgetting the other one. 
Aquila was uh, not the one in the New Testament, did uh, a version of it. And these, uh, I have read that they were translated to be alternatives to the Septuagint because Christians had sort of appropriated that one. Uh, so it, it's a bit of a mess, but because it is, there's extensive scholarship on it. Now, is the is the Apocrypha, uh, is that collection neglected by uh, scholars? Well, I'd say not. Uh, there is a good bit of scholarship on that, and uh, there are anchor Bible volumes devoted to translation and commentary of all the apocryphal books and various others. And uh, Roman Catholic uh, scholars have done a lot of work on this. And uh, so it's, or uh, Protestants like uh, Edgar Goodspeed. I mean, he, he published his own translation of the Apocrypha and, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, there are, and, and particular books are very important in New Testament studies. For instance, the idea of the atonement, uh, the, the atoning sufferings of Christ, that is highly reminiscent of the atoning sacrifice of martyrs described in 2nd and 4th Maccabees. And, and there's other stuff in there, too, that is highly relevant to uh, the New Testament. And that also uh, fits with the pseudepigrapha, right? These books that you find among the Dead Sea Scrolls and elsewhere, um, various apocalyptic works attributed to Old Testament figures and so on. Um, th those are mighty interesting and, and have a lot to say about the, the New Testament. And apparently were, they were considered scripture by the uh, Qumran community. So there's a lot to study out there, and there are, a, you don't have to begin de novo, right? There's a lot of uh, studies of them. Um, I, I've never heard the claim that the Septuagint was destroyed in the Library of Alexandria. I mean, there must have been copies of it there, uh, because it was probably Alexandria where the Septuagint was uh, translated and compiled, but it certainly didn't destroy all copies of it. And, uh, oh, I guess that's about all I got to say on that. Thanks, Kelly. Very good. Hmm. Let's see, I think I'm going to leave it there for the moment, uh, and I got an interview coming up tonight and don't want to strain my voice, uh, but uh, uh, these are, as always, fascinating questions from, uh, from intellectually nimble and adept listeners, and uh, I'm proud of you, and keep on sending them in. I still have a bunch, but uh, I'll be running out of them fairly soon, so I'm depending on you to send me a bunch more, and I'll see you next time on the uh, next exciting episode of the Bible Geek.